0: You guys poured your heart and soul into that weekend, and uh, uh, we loved it, so it was great. Mostly Kenny. Yeah, Ryan isn't doing anything. What, what does Ryan do? I'm just kidding.
1: I'm kidding, Ryan. <laughs> he's, he's not here to defend himself, so we can, we can do that. <laughs> this is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. At some point, you're going to find yourself going to a bourbon festival. And rightly, you should. It's where people like us gather to try new whiskeys, do new things, and meet like-minded community people. On today's show, I've invited Diane Strong of Bourbon on the Banks and Drew Chosner of the St. Louis Bourbon Festival to come on the show and talk about throwing a bourbon festival that just isn't more the same. The goal is to make a truly engaging event for bourbon lovers by bringing them together with an exciting mix of upstart distilleries and other big brands for tastings. But how do you find a balance in there? And we also talk about including educational seminars and what really the overall format should look like. And then we dive into the nitty-gritty of things like city permitting, making access to water for everybody and how to calculate ticket prices for attendees. With that, enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Alan Channel, who writes me on fredminnick.com. He wants to know what happens to a distillery after a master distiller leaves. What do they do operationally? And I'll tell you, Alan, it depends on the company. Everyone is different. You know, they all have their systems and their processes. You know, the way Four Roses operates is very different than the way Jim Beam operates, which is different than the way Heaven Hill operates. But these larger companies, the Master Distiller has a lot of people underneath them that know know how to do the jobs of what a master distiller does now let's let's be honest here the way that operations are set up now is that a master distiller is looking at how the automation is working and they they have a computer that tells them everything that is going on in the system there's not just one person monitoring that there are actually usually several people who monitor the the status of a mash or a distillation etc so i think i feel like the larger distillers have the talent have the people who've been there a while and they also have very good unions that train people to make sure that they can uh, do the job properly and i feel like there's there's always someone there who can fill in that role now the larger distillers do face the the pr consequences of a master distiller leaving. Like people question, whoa, what's going on over here at Angel's Envy or Heaven Hill or Maker's Mark? Are they going to be okay? Uh, But the fact is, operationally, there's not going to be many issues at all. It's the smaller distillers that really face it. You know, if you are a small distiller, maybe putting out 500 barrels a year, you rely a lot on the master distiller. And I I would imagine that the master distiller... In a lot of the smaller companies, they're usually owners, or they usually have some skin in the game, where leaving is going to be a lot harder. So when you see when you sm- see a small company lose their master distiller, it's pretty rare. But if that person were to leave, I would imagine that the owner would step in in that situation. Now, in his uh, email to me, Alan did ask about uh, Kentucky Peerless. You know that kind of gave him the the idea behind this question because Caleb Kilburn, the master distiller, uh, is leaving to start his own brand. But from my understanding, you know, they reached uh, an agreement for him to stay on a little bit to get things in a good place. And I know Caleb very well and I can't see him just up and leaving and uh, leaving Peerless in, in bad hands. So I think I know that that situation will work out well for both ends, but it always, it's kind of like everything else, Alan. It varies, and it's different from company to company. The bigger they are, I feel like the more they have it controlled. The smaller they are, depending on how the ownership is set up, that's where it can hurt for sure. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Alan, hit me up on fredminick.com. That's fredminick.com. Click the contact button and send me your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air.
1: Cheers. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixirs Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Fred and I, Kenny, as always, are here today, but it's going to be a fun topic, something that if you've been in bourbon, maybe even less than a year, And you've probably looked on Facebook, you've seen events, you've maybe seen it on Eventbrite or something like that. And you're like, oh, look, there's a bourbon festival near me. And that has become kind of the thing where our people hang out. Well, that's just a bourbon festival is just something that where people want to go to experience a lot of new things, experience a new, new lot of brands, seminars, education, food trucks, like who knows, there's there's 50 different ways to kind of take this thing. And I I think that this has been one of the things that we've seen over the history of the probably the past, I don't know, Fred, what do you say, maybe five to 10 years that these have begun really flourishing. And I think that you could probably find one in every remote city across the U.S. now.
2: Well, you know, Kenny, anytime we get into any subject, I like to give you kind of like a historical arc of how all of these things started. So Bourbon Events... They are so important to the comeback of bourbon. In fact, we have uh, September is essentially Bourbon Heritage Month because the distillers were trying to complement the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which started in September in the early 1990s, and people were coming in all from all over the world—Japan, Australia, England—to celebrate bourbon. And over the years, uh, magazines like Whiskey Magazine they started. Uh, Whiskey Live, uh, Whiskey Advocate, started Whiskey Fest. So you had all of these little uh, cottage industries would create complimentary events. And then you had the associations, the organizations like Bourbon Women come out, and they started hosting events for their for their members. Now you have music festivals, which I helped put on, like Bourbon and Beyond, that's bringing in the likes of Foo Fighters and Bruno Mars to bring in you know, normal people, and then the side act is is bourbon. So you have you have this stuff happening all over the country, whether it's for profit, whether it's for organizations, or it's just a little old uh, bottle share, like a group meets in a hotel room and everyone brings a bottle. So uh, events really are the catalyst for going from buying a bottle uh, every now and then in a liquor store to spending way too much money. On bourbon, so it's how you get to meet other people that are spending way too much money. So I think it's kind of like therapeutic for us and and uh, our and our faulty bank accounts. So
1: that's why events, I think, are so important. I think I like that it's a it's a therapy session because people like us do things like this. That's exactly right. Well, think about Pursuit Palooza. Yeah,
2: you, know, you look around that room when we're just just kind of hanging out, and we're just like, man, we could all be saving our money in a much better fashion, but we're all there hanging out, having a good time. And that's what it—that's what it's all about. And and when the pandemic took it from us, it was oh, it sucks so bad. And so I think there's still a lot, lot of people just trying to uh, get back in the groove of events. But it really is—it's—it's it's bonding, it's therapy, whatever you want to call it. It's—it's it's where we hang.
1: Yeah, and it's true. And There's just one of these things that people start gravitating towards. It. A lot of people are starting to come from around the state, uh, different places, and try to really get enamored with it. And it's just one of those things that if you are getting into bourbon, this is a, a prime opportunity to say like, oh, gosh, the the walls are so full of just stuff. I don't even know what to do. Or I want to go discover something different. This is the way to do it. And, you know, sampling is just the one of the key factors of brand growth and awareness. And that's something that I'm learning firsthand as we go through this. But the one cool thing that we have about today's episode is that everybody here today in some form of fashion, has created some sort of bourbon event. And that's really the idea is like how, and we kind of want to pick apart this to figure out how do we throw a bourbon festival that doesn't suck? And I've been to my fair share of things, and some feel like it's just a run-of-the-mill, but... I've had the opportunity to know our two guests today and be able to attend their events and kind of know how well they do things as well. So let me go ahead and introduce them. So first, I'm going to introduce Diane Strong. Diane Strong is one of the people that are on the board and one of the creators of Bourbon on the Banks that's hosted in Frankfort, Kentucky. So Diane, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. It's an honor.
1: For sure. And the second we've got Drew Chostner. He's of the St. Louis Bourbon Society, but he is also the co-creator of the St. Louis Bourbon Festival. So, Drew, welcome to the show as well. Oh, glad I'm here. Thanks for having me. For sure. So before we dive into that, you know, Diane, I'll start with you a little bit. Kind of talk about your quick journey into bourbon and what got you really motivated to be a part of joining a board and being a part of creating bourbon on the banks
3: boy my journey with bourbon I moved to Kentucky in 1999 right about the time that Buffalo Trace was opening up I uh, didn't have any family here when they would come to visit we'd take them to Buffalo Trace that was back when the tours were free. well they're still free but you didn't have to stand in line for a while or make a special appointment even then I think we were usually just one of a handful of people on the tours, but. I wasn't a huge fan of bourbon, but I always tasted it at the end, and it created a lot of really good memories. So, moved forward, moved to Frankfurt just over five years ago, joined the Bourbon Society here, and um, it, it when I start started trying bourbon again, it was very nostalgic. It brought back those memories with family, and I thought it was just, it really made me want to keep going farther. Anyway, so... You know, I was kind of a stay-at-home mom, big activist, like trying to help with my community. And uh, the first year Bourbon on the Banks was around, they're like, hey, Diane's got nothing else to do, clearly. So maybe she could help with this. And I was in charge of the free Friday event. Um, Wendy Kobler was actually the brainchild behind the original event that started in 2019. Uh, She was from out of state, I believe, worked for Kentucky State University as a fundraiser person there. And just realized what we had in Frankfurt that we all kind of took for granted. And she, I think she must have looked around at other bourbon events and tried to bring all of those pieces into one event. 2019, the inaugural year, was pretty successful. Um, I took over the following year. She got a great job and she left the day after the event. And they asked me to step in and... I had the privilege to look and see what worked and what really didn't and to take what worked and make it better and just drop what didn't. So uh, I've taken it over since then. Uh, 2020, we didn't have an event, obviously, but um, I've been the executive director for since 2020. This will be my third year running it.
1: Awesome. And we'll dive in more with that as well. But I want to give Drew a chance opportunity to talk about He's got a his background in bourbon it's got a, a a pretty long story here, so I'll let him kind of give the abbreviated version and also kind of talk about maybe a little about St. Louis bourbon society and then how that really transformed and morphed into creating your own bourbon festival as well.
0: Yes, I'll try to keep it brief if I can uh so basically, I moved here to St Louis in uh twenty eighteen and really didn't know anybody in the whiskey world down here. You know, I drank whiskey, drank bourbon. With a neighbor in when i was you know back in lansing michigan but essentially moved here joined a bunch of whiskey bourbon groups and was trying to find the group that kind of suited what i really was looking for which was kind of a like community of people and i came across uh james thomas who is our co-founder he actually founded the st louis bourbon society originally back in 2016. and uh we got together had some drinks and you know I was thinking well I was gonna meet with this big group of people and it was literally James <laughs> and he had, he had a following online of you know probably a couple hundred people and I you know I said uh you know so when's the next meeting and he's he says he goes he goes this is the very first one he goes we've never met in person <laughs> so I was like oh okay well but you know from that from that meetup we were quickly uh were able to establish a great relationship and And knew right away that we want to take the community of bourbon to a different level in St. Louis. And we were both a part of different whiskey groups in St. Louis, and and there's a bunch of them that do a great job. But there was something for us personally that was lacking that we were looking for. So we really wanted to have that um, additional experience of not just meeting maybe like in the same place every time, but maybe changing it up and meeting elsewhere, different locations, bringing some history and kind of make you unique each time we got together. So we started doing that right away, and then the pandemic hit, and we had uh, some larger festivals planned, and we had to put them on hold for essentially two years. And during that pandemic um, in 21, I uh, actually retired from my corporate job of 20 years, and really kind of flung myself into these festivals and these events we were putting together. So... Bringing us to present day time now, we actually put on two large festivals a year currently, and we're adding a third one, third annual next year. So we'll have three annual different types of bourbon festivals that we'll be running as an annual event each year.
2: And I presented at last year's and just really well done. I
0: mean, you all put on a great event. Thank you. That's That's a great compliment coming from Fred Minnick.
2: I w- but I will say that the oh there's always a bud, isn't there? The place where I presented was a little haunted, and I got just a little nervous going to the, when I was alone in the what's it called Lip bathroom. Lipman's yeah the bathroom Mary man I didn't want
0: to say it but <laughs> freaking creepy uh, Lippman's Mansion what's it called? Uh, what was Lemp, it called Lemp Mansion Restaurant Hotel yeah it's it's rated usually in the top ten of the most haunted places in America and again it goes back to you know. Where do you throw a bourbon event? Where do you throw a festival? And we're always looking for historical venues that can kind of bring a little bit of St. Louis history, architecture, and maybe even some ghosts into it. If we can throw in anything that's cool, we're probably going to try to do it. I swear to God, I felt a shoulder on my back when I was in the bathroom. It's so freaking creepy.
2: Or I, fe- well, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was creepy. I guess Kenny and Ryan are going to find out this year since they're presenting
0: here in October.
2: It might be Kenny on Ryan's shoulder, so that way it's a a whole
1: different thing. It's more for like security purposes. We just want to know each other. We just feel safer that way. I mean, it's not even a haunted bathroom. We just do that in bathrooms no matter what. We'll make sure we're just holding each other's shoulders.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe we can drag Fred along
1: this year to kind of keep Kenny and Ryan safe. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so I, I kind of want to first off kick this off, kind of understanding the reasoning and, and wanting to do this, Drew. I'll kind of start with you, and I'm assuming that you know creating the St. Louis Bourbon Festival. You've also done the Bourbon and Brews Festival. Is the idea of, of creating these festivals to create a little bit more cash flow that goes in to help fund everything you're doing for the Bourbon Society, or what's the what's the goal with that?
0: Uh, so, I mean, the idea is that obviously you can't put on these these scale of festivals, you know, based on uh, the couple dollars that that we have in our own accounts, we we do have, they do fund each other essentially. So one is a necessity for the other to, to set these up with all the resources and supplies that are needed. But um, essentially, you know, the goal is to just to create a bigger community for uh, anybody who is looking to find out more about whiskey and bourbon to, to know as much as they can. And these festivals provide them a space to, Get to know as many brands as possible fairly quickly and is basically at a, a fairly cheap rate because if they tried to go out and buy all these bottles individually to test them out nobody can afford that i can't afford that so to be able to go to one of these events and and for a set price be able to try over five six hundred different whiskeys we don't want them to try all of those at once but they do hopefully have a list that the things they want to try and then they get to know the brands and build those relationships.
1: What about you, Diane? Uh, I guess I, I never really understood the the background of like where Bourbon on the Banks kind of really comes from, and and really does the does the attendance and the cash flow that comes in to help fund the next year, or like what's that go towards?
3: Uh, so Bourbon on the Banks is a nonprofit we don't have to return money to anyone. Um, It can just fund itself. But uh, we actually have three beneficiaries that we raise money for. The biggest one is the Bluegrass Foundation, which is, it's a foundation here in Frankfurt where we can basically earmark what that money is used for. And we've decided that it needs to be used for um, anything in our community that benefits the people who live in the area but also people who visit so this year the $25,000 went to improvements at our park where we actually have the event we have 15 let's see here 15,000 that goes to or we had 25,000 go to the park last year uh 15,000 to scholarships for anybody going into the burman industry so the fermentation and distillation programs um hospitality and then 10000 went to the White Oak Initiative, you know, trying to be responsible. We are well aware of the impact that bourbon can have. So we want to give back, and I think we're in good company with that as well. But yeah, we, we always set aside money um, from the ticket sales to uh, cover the expenses for the following year at a bare minimum. We do uh, get sponsors. Uh, we've had uh, sponsors return. Community Trust has been our main sponsor for... Since the very beginning and uh and yeah the ticket sales so it's it's great I mean we, we are really proud of the fact that we're able to give back that fifty thousand last year and it, honestly uh, I think it helps um it helps me make decisions i'm I'm not having to make decisions to make the most amount of money possible i can I can make decisions that are going to make sure that the attendees and everyone involved is you know the happiest and and the best thing for them, as opposed to the best thing for whoever's you know funding this. Yeah,
1: no, totally. And so the other thing I kind of want to get into is is uh, let's let's paint a picture for folks. And I've done my fair share of going to it tech conferences for the past decade and a half, and they all feel pretty much the same because there are there's activations and there's booths and whether it's in Vegas or San Francisco or Orlando, or if it's in mean, Barcelona, they all look the same. Like there's no difference in a tech conference because it's just the booths and the same people and screens and all this other kind of stuff. So kind of paint a picture, and Diana, I'll let you kind of start first here. Paint a picture of like what folks see and sort of how Bourbon on the Banks is different than what you would get at any other kind of typical whiskey festival.
3: Well, it's, it's funny you say that because... Going into this, I had not been to a bourbon festival and I made it a point not to go to other bourbon festivals specifically because I didn't want to have the pressure of trying to do everything everybody's doing, but also be unique and not just be regurgitated over and over. But what you do see is, you know, as you come down, you come up over the flood wall you can't really see until you get to the top of the flood wall. And then as you look down, it, the the event is a, a linear event. It's right along the banks of the Kentucky River on a public trail. And you basically see rows of distilleries for the most part. We've got a couple breweries and some merchants and stuff. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, everybody, the energy is what I always think of as being just everybody's smiling and happy. And you know we limit the number of attendees, so you really no one's standing in line for a long time to um, get a sample. We also encourage the distilleries to not just bring a brand rep. We want a lot of these, especially the smaller ones. It's easy to get you know the distillers, the blenders, and the people who really are familiar and intimate with the product to to talk about it. And they do. It's 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 pretty awesome. We also invite... Um, we have social media influencers that are there, a couple podcasts, and uh, even a, a TikTok channel. And we've also got our bourbon societies that we invite. The only thing we require is that you do something to offer our attendees. We want an interactive experience. And so every booth you go to, nobody's just there to like sell you a truck or something. Obviously, it has to be bourbon-related. But it's... You know they're going to let you drive the truck. It's going to be an actual hands-on experience for the attendee, and that's the Saturday festival. That's the main event.
2: Yeah, Diane, I remember when the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, you could buy a garage garage door opener in like a whirlpool. So like, right. you know, <laughs> there, there Things have evolved over the years for sure.
3: Yeah, people ask. I mean, they'll they'll be like, you have vendors, but we're not a craft show. We have very specific vendors. I don't duplicate vendors you'll have a bourbon candle for sale there but only one vendor that sells them we don't duplicate i want my vendors to do well too and so there's some bourbon shopping going on of course you can buy bottles as well but
2: yeah and that's kind of the evolution of it you know from a from a legal perspective you couldn't even you couldn't buy stuff you, and they up until i want to say 10 years ago you c- couldn't even do like tastings at some of them uh, I'm curious on on the permitting side because I do an event called Blind Bourbon all over the country, and like a promoter that usually works with musicians brings me in, and uh, they handle all the permits and so forth. And sometimes we have to go through a charity uh, to do it to do what I want to do. So, Drew, talk to me about like the the legality of putting on a festival. That require that's alcohol. How many permits do you have to get? How many meetings do you have to have with the city, etc.
0: Way too many meetings, first <laughs> of all. <laughs> but uh, so each festival is different. The one in our summer called Bourbon & Brews is done at a facility that has a liquor license, and everything is done on their premise. So that one's a lot easier. We have to get a couple of permits from the city for tents and stuff. But the festival in the fall... Way more complicated. It's three city square blocks on the street and in buildings. And so we need a lot of different permits. So we work with a 501c3 in the fall called the St. Louis Hero Network. So that festival, we donate a portion of all ticket sales to uh, first responders of St. Louis. And they are a good partner. And they help us with the picnic licenses that are required to have alcohol on the street. The Venue itself has liquor licenses, but that doesn't cover the three city blocks where alcohol is needed to be for sampling. So there is a whole uh, long process to go through with the city of St. Louis to um, get that permit. And so there's the picnic license permit you need. you got to be a 501c3 or hold a liquor license, which we are neither. So that's why we have good partners that help us with these uh, different things we need to do. And then on top of that, to be able to sell the bottles at the event, you got to have a city and state liquor license to sell bottles. Even though we don't do the selling, we allow that to go through local retail and let them do all the uh, selling of those bottles. But even to that point, it's a whole nother set of permits that takes about six months to obtain. And uh, the very first year we did this, Those licenses took almost 11 months from start to finish. Now they've streamlined some of that. The city of St. Louis has streamlined a lot of that. Now it's online for the most part. So it has gotten shorter, but it is always a very nerve wracking time when you're applying for the permits and you're getting close to starting ticket sales. You're like, okay, I got to get the permit before I take a dollar. So literally the day our festival ends in October, We're applying for permits by usually December 1st for the next year because we've got to make sure that everything's in place before we move forward.
2: Now, do you have to, in terms of the product that you are serving, do you all have to acquire that through a distributor or does your local law allow the distiller to bring their own product?
0: Uh, You know, it goes to the the three-tier process. So basically, we have to go through a distributor and then it has to go through a on or off-premise end-user. So it's a restaurant or a retailer. So yeah, a lot of it basically all runs through Lemp Mansion at the end. So they're on-premise. So we buy all the products from different distributors. It all goes into our our on-premise partner, Lemp Mansion. And then they distribute it the day of to the vendors who show up. So, you know, say uh, Kenny and Ryan are going to be there this fall. And so that day their product will be available for the pickup to go put at their tables. Okay. Diane,
2: I feel like Kentucky's laws are a little bit uh, more liberal there. Like the distillers, they can bring their own product. Is, isn't is that correct?
3: As long as they have a Kentucky distillery license, they can sell by the bottle and they can bring their own product and they can sample legally.
0: I need to start doing festivals down there in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a lot easier.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, but... If you don't have a Kentucky distillery license, uh, we do have, a, if you are a, a liquor store, you're allowed to also sample and sell product at festivals and farmer market, farmer's markets in the county where you hold your license. So we actually have capital sellers that'll set up at our event. And for those who are out of state or don't have the Kentucky distillery license, they will carry the product so the attendees can still go home with the product, but it's capital sellers who's who's selling it to them, not the actual distillery or business.
2: Now you're you're doing this where our state capital is, so mm-hmm. I imagine permitting is is of uh, the utmost importance for you because you don't want a lawmaker you know coming over there and, and check looking under the hood,
1: seeing you know how you got things organized. They can but, just ride their bike over and just start handing out citations. <laughs> yeah,
3: I can literally throw a stone from where the event takes place and hit the ABC.
1: Oh,
2: so are, are, they, are they helpful? Do they nose in? How, how does that work?
3: They are very helpful in answering my questions. Last year, I really dove in deep because I wanted to make sure that we were legally selling bottles. I think I went in over my head and asked too many questions. I, and it's, it's, it's overwhelming, but they are very responsive. They're helpful. They've been good to work with.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of that stuff's gray area open to interpretation sometimes. It just depends on who you're interpreting with that day.
3: We do have a lawyer that that focuses specifically on that, who sits on our board for that very reason. <laughs> so. I tell
2: you what, the open to interpretation just goes out the window when they show up on site and want to look at all of your licensing and, and how product came in. Drew, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had an ABC cop show up?
0: No. We, again, the, the three-tier system is pretty well in stone for us. So we, we just follow that and work with our distributors closely to make sure that we're following all the regulations because they're the ones that are ultimately not only responsible, but they want to make sure they're doing it right. So we, we, we take a lot of advice. We ask a lot of questions, like Diane said. There's never a bad question. You might ask it more than once, but sometimes you get more than one answer. So you ask it, you ask it to a lot of people to make sure. But essentially, yeah, we, we're going to make sure we follow every possible rule because we do not want somebody showing up an hour before the festival to say there's a problem. To me, that's my worst nightmare. So we have obviously large checklists of who we're talking to, when we talk to them, who said what, to make sure that everything is in line. But now the there's always the possibility the health department can show up or we have had, you know, the city show up an hour before the event to check electrical, to check, make sure that we're following all the possible procedures that we're supposed to be doing. Because we we rely on many different companies, such as tent companies and different services to put these festivals on. And even though we do all of our background research, we are sure hoping that they are following the letter of the law also. And so we've never gotten bitten yet, but it is something that concerns me and I think about all the time.
1: Well, at least you could say, well, here's a complimentary membership to the St. Louis Bourbon Society. Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that might help. Maybe not. And that's bribing, right? I don't know. It's free. It's a free membership. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of know is that how, what's what your, your approach is? Like what's, an, what's a successful approach that you've seen To be able to get brands to really jump on board and want to either be partners, whether they're handing out products or doing something that's different. So how do you approach it? Or do you kind of just put out in the ether and let people come to you? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people, like you and me, who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. and you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. What's a successful approach that you've seen to be able to get brands to really jump on board and want to either be partners, whether they're handing out products or doing something that's different? So how do you approach it or do you kind of just put out in the ether and let people come to you? Drew, I'll let you go first. Uh you know, when, when we first started, it was like an email blast. Like, hey,
0: who's interested? And we send one to the distributor and to all the individual brands. And then now that we've gotten to build some r- great relationships over the years, and, you know, James and I, we do travel for festivals. We we go to these festivals not only to see what they're doing, to see if we can add value to ours, but also to build those relationships. You know, we, when we run into Kenny and Ryan at uh, KBF, you know, we get to have at least two minutes to to kind of build that relationship a little bit. But, you know, essentially, we are working hard to make sure that these events are um, not only good for us, but it has to be good for the actual vendor and brand. They have to find value in these events because it, for them, it there's an expenditure for them. Whether the table is free or it costs them X amount of dollars, uh, they got to travel. They have to have a hotel. They have to do this and that. And so, at the end of the day, if they don't find value in what we're doing, we might not get them back next year. So, we do a lot of uh, digging to find out what makes these events valuable and worthwhile for them. What's the ROI for them? Is it good? And we do we do ask for a lot of feedback from brands, too, after the events are over to find out if we've done our job and if we haven't, what do we need to do better next year? Yeah.
2: Diane, one thing I noticed, your event is in October. so. September distillers, you know, Drew's talking about distillers like making sure it's worth their while. Distillers are burned out in September because they have to do one event after another. They feel like they have to show up to everything. And then you got you got two major events in the Kentucky Bourbon Festival and Bourbon and Beyond happening essentially at the same time. And if you throw an event in September, the chances are you are not going to get the A-list distillers. So you do it at the first week of October, I was curious, do you get a sense that they are not worn out at that first week? Cause they've had a little time to rest after the bourbon heritage month.
3: Okay. So right before the event, when they're doing all the stuff, I will say they kind of ghost me a little bit because they're so damn busy. But when they come back on board, they're like, Hey, I am so sorry. I, and, and this is, you know, here's your, my insurance certificate and all this stuff. But they're like, they're ready to go. It always amazes me how much energy they show up with. And, you know, you're asking about how we get them. You know, in 2021, I just assumed I would be emailing the people that showed up the year before and they'd be like, yeah, we're coming back. But it, it took a lot more than that. I will say now that, you know, we're a few years into it, They, I send out that initial blast right after the event. First of all, I, I do send out surveys to my distilleries to get feedback and, and try to make sure they're treated better or any problems, but, uh, they line up They're They're happy. They're like, absolutely. We're back on board. We had a great time. We're sure to take care of them when they're there. We've got a great group of volunteers. These guys get help setting up tents and setting things up. And we've been really fortunate. They, they come back and they tell their friends, we've got a great word of mouth and we've continued to get more and more distilleries every year. This year we're over 70.
2: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I guess another question to kind of follow up with that as well, because Fred kind of talked about the big boys. And that's one of those things that we start seeing is is like, how, how have you seen attendees? And how do they gravitate towards certain booths? Do you see people starting to still be like, oh, yeah, like, we've got to go visit the Jim beam, the heaven hill, the four roses? Or do you see people start going like, hey, what are these new upstarts that we want to go and see? How do you kind of see the the shift of people and and how they are, they're gravitating towards certain places.
3: Boy, you ask me, I'm always busy packing waters and stuff to pay attention. Um, (laughs) You know, what I will say is that the big boys, they're a little harder to work with because they have so much corporate going on. You know, some of them won't sign my vendor agreement. They want their lawyers to write up a new one. And, and I understand that. I'm not, being judgmental. I love them. I you know, they're very important. But at the same time, they don't have time to send like their best people to all the events. So they tend to send a brand rep that isn't as passionate about the product. And so the experience that my attendees have with them is not necessarily as great as with the smaller guys. And so I don't know. I mean, I know that they want to they line up for them definitely. But um, I I don't know that the experience is the same as if you just get, you know, whiskey thief or somebody that you've got those guys who are working there every day. They I will say with Buffalo Trace, you know, they didn't come back in 2021. They were very slow to go back to festivals after the pandemic, um, understandably. But my surveys that I sent out to my attendees, they notice. They're like, where's Buffalo Trace? And um, I spoke with Buffalo Trace and they came back in 2022 and they set up. They were great. And um, my survey last year, it was no longer where was Buffalo Trace. It was why weren't they bigger? Why didn't they have a bigger presence? You know, so I I will say the attendees expect a lot from them, at least Buffalo Trace, because this is our hometown and this is where they're at. But um, so they do want to. They definitely want to see the big guys for sure.
2: Definitely a lot of turnover during that time frame for Buffalo Trace as well. So anybody listening to this, if you're thinking about doing uh, doing an event, one of the things that you will that may frustrate you are your local laws. One of those is in some areas of the country, the distillers are not allowed to pour for themselves. You actually have to hire someone that is a licensed bartender or a catering company to do the pouring for you. And when someone walks by the booth and they ask that person a question, they know nothing about the product. And so I've done so many of these over the years, and I've seen a huge disconnect from uh, consumers walking around and they have to get a whiskey from one of those types of people that don't know anything about the product because the law requires that. So the ambassador, the distiller is just kind of sitting there talking and if they get distracted, you know, they're not answering that that uh, consumer's question. How do you all make sure because it's different for everybody, but how do you all make sure that the distillers are engaged, the brand ambassadors are actually talking to the attendees because this is one of the major issues with whiskey events across the country.
3: I I don't think that is as big of a problem here in Kentucky. We don't have to, they do um, expect them to be star certified, which, you know, anytime they're pouring, it's, this isn't the only event they go to in Kentucky. So they're going to be star certified, you know, every now and then they will ask that we provide someone to pour for them, but they always bring somebody who knows what they're doing. Now, I, I can't control what kind of knowledge they come with or you know, what they say. I, I can't be at the booth all the time, but I always encourage them to to send somebody that is passionate about it.
1: Yeah. Plus, you got to understand, uh, Frankfurt's just an hour away from maybe here in Louisville. So when you're in the backyard of everybody, it's a little bit easier to make it to, to those types of events.
2: I would say still, though, like, even in, in Louisville, you know, they just sometimes they'd they don't always send their, their A team
0: yeah, and you know, it's just, there's a lot of events happening. That's for sure. There are. What about you, Drew? So, you know, as, as I'm sure Diane has done over the years, you know, you build relationships with these brands and you get to know people, you know, you start the local reps and then you kind of work your way up the level and eventually you get to know some of the higher ups and you, you know once you kind of show them the value you're providing their brand at these events they tend to be a little more generous with their people and time and so when we you know get into doing these events we we really try to shoot for the top and we we try to bring in the, the best people we can that have the most knowledge obviously you're not going to bring in every master distiller that's not going to happen they they are very busy but you know we brought in 15 different presenters last year And we're super appreciative, especially uh, Fred Minick was there. We really appreciate your time. But we're probably not going to hit them up every year to do our events. We're probably going to change it up and and try to be conscious of their efforts and time that they've they've spent at our events. One of the things that we run into, like you're all discussing, is that uh, you might have promo people. And promo people are those who are hired locally to pour if the if the brand itself is not available, and uh, that's something that is always a bit concerning for us. We we try to bring in as many local or national reps as possible. Promo people work hard, but the reality is they just don't have the knowledge base of those brands. You know they're brought in they're brought in kind of last minute, and they they do a good job, but they're not doing probably what the brand would expect them to do, you know, if they were trained, you know, at the home office.
2: Well, Drew, and, and to that point, a, a lot of times these events fall under the purview of like a regional brand manager. And those regional brand managers are accustomed to hiring models to go to casinos and so forth to to sell their product in a place that there's not a, a desirable level of knowledge. So it's just pouring and woo party kind of thing. And I have found that even like the top level events that happens a lot. And they, the, and some people like that. Some people find that their product is more appreciated when they have models or those promo folks doing it. But really at, at the core whiskey events, you gotta have whiskey people. It just—it's just how it is. So if you're a brand out there, hire the right people.
0: Yeah, and like I said, it goes back to relationships, and I'm sure uh, Diane's familiar with this. That you know, when we're planning an event, we're we're making those calls early on to all of our people that we built relationships with over the years to make sure that they're going to provide the highest level of service and knowledge possible. You know, and there's going always going to be a couple. I would say it's a pretty low percentage that we actually have promo or models for. We're shooting for 90% to be directly from the distillery brand to be available to answer questions of pour. Also, we find that when it's somebody directly from the brand, they tend to pour a little more responsibly, which is something that's very concerning to us every year. We, we spend a lot of time trying to trying to make sure that we are being as responsible as possible when it comes to sampling at these events.
1: You make a a really good point there, Drew. And I'd like to Diane understand your your thought process on there is like what are you doing to help promote the responsibility side of things? Because yeah, especially if you go into an event and you give a glass and you say, Have at it. Like be an adult, but we know that doesn't always happen and there's always gonna be somebody that takes it too far. So what do you all try to do to make sure that you try to keep that within the guardrails?
3: Well, I mean, in the vendor agreement they sign it says it's a quarter ounce pour. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that they're going to do that, or they're going to give three different expressions, and it adds up, of course. And uh, you know, in the past, we've done uh, coupons. I've tried to figure out, you know, how much whiskey can you have in a certain amount of time, and it's a four-hour event, and yada yada yada. At the end of the day, it's it's it's. It seems like it should be the adults who are attending that are responsible, but ultimately it's the responsibility of those who are pouring. And I remind them, uh, we send out several emails as we lead up to the event, and I remind them in those emails, especially the last one they received, that it is their responsibility to make sure that they do not serve anyone who is blatantly intoxicated you don't have to be rude, politely tell them to go take a break. And uh, we've been very, very fortunate that we've not had anything horrible happen. We've had, you know, one person last year pass out, they took a nap, and then they walked out of there, you know, but it's it's we've been very fortunate. But I think the key is to remind them that it's it's their responsibility. It's it's not ours as an event.
2: So, Kenny, I'll tell you, this is a real challenge for me at my events, Blind Bourbon, because I'm not working with the distilleries. You know, this is me going to a music hall. So I do these events at uh, music venues across the country. Three to 500 people will show up. And they, the music uh, hall folks, the promoters, they want people to get there early so they can have some revenue from the restaurant and bar. So they will have people come in an hour, two hours early. And before they even show up to my blind bourbon set, you know they they maybe have had three four beers and sometimes it's something else, and so that's a that's on us from an education perspective with the with the venue. But they're like they look at they look at it as like uh well Gary Clark Jr. is selling more, we make more money on Gary Clark Jr. than we do you, so they look at it as like they want to make money. So that's the that's one of the challenges I have and i've been, i've kind of changed up who i work with to to try and solve that but man, you you cannot control there's so many things you cannot control from an event perspective like who knows if somebody drank a fifth of vodka in the parking lot before they showed up or slammed six RTDs you know on the golf course you just don't know and so you have to have people who have are looking out for that sort of thing but that's that's one of the biggest challenges and every whiskey event you go to, there's always one person. As long as it's not 10, you know, I feel like the industry is doing a a fairly decent job at uh, maintaining responsibility.
1: Yep. For sure. Uh, and I guess the other thing is, is promoting this as well is like, are you offering free water and all this other kind of stuff to attendees? Because you've got to make sure that they're not just consuming whiskey for, for four hours straight. So I'll, Diane Drew, like, how, how do you go about doing that?
3: Well, <laughs> when I first took over, we had just, they had just had, um, oh, what's the bourbon festival that, that took place, uh, at Keeneland. Oh, um, oh uh, Railbird. Railbird. Was it? Yeah. The first year of Railbird. And evidently it was just insanely hot and they weren't prepared with water. And so. That second year was it the second well water was on the brain right after that so i was just like we need to make sure we have water we can't have this happen you know especially when we're focusing on drinking they're listening to music so yeah we do i i work with uh the water department here in frankfurt they provide two different they're called water towers or something like that and they actually you can get your free water from there fill up your sample glass that you get and take some water but we also have free water uh, bottles available at many of the like the tourism tent and merchandise tent in several locations it's available
2: yeah Candy, she, she brought up Railbird I want to point out like you have to think of like those large scale music festivals Mo- water is a revenue generator it's like one of the main revenue generators for a concert promoter because they can sell the bottled water so when they when you see free water being handed out Someone at some point is is paying for that, or it's such a it, it's such a potential disaster that the promoter has to do it. But man, they will not want to give out free water unless they have to because it's such
1: a revenue generator. I'm sure you can just bake it into some part of the ticket sales as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, it's worth it every bit. And we work with limestone water, and they do a great job giving us a good deal. So,
0: yep. Drew, go ahead. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, James and I, we, we kind of travel around to as many festivals as possible because we want to find out what's working, what's not working. And something that we've noticed early on was that a lot of these festivals charge for water, which I think is kind of, uh, it just kind of works against the whole ethos of responsible drinking because, you know, like I, I have free samples for four hours, but someone's going to charge me for a bottle of water. It seems kind of, you know, disconnected. So from the very beginning, uh, we've always offered free water. <laughs> you know, it started out as simple as us going to Costco and buying cases of water, which we can't do anymore because the size of our events now. But um, now we, now at this point, we have large amounts of water delivered to our events. We have water sponsors such as Liquid Death, Spring Mountain Water, which are they've been awesome partners. Um, they bring in their water. And then we also partner with a, a local company called Puritan Spring Water, And they'll be bringing in uh, large amounts of water for our events. So there's free water at the gate when you walk in, and there's water throughout the venue, uh, no charge. And we also definitely promote them to bring their own water, water bottles, any kind of container they want to bring water in on, that's totally fine with us. Because, you know, for us, the the more water they're drinking and consuming, the more food they're eating, the more they can probably enjoy themselves. Because at the end of the day, if they're not doing those things, they're probably going to have a Probably a bad hangover the next day, so we want to make sure those are limited as much as possible. We want them to remember the the great experience they had, and not remember the terrible hangover they had the next day.
1: Right, <laughs> typically, yeah. That. So, Diane made a really good point in the very beginning. These of just like trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, and continually making adjustments as you can kind of go through here. And Drew, this one's more towards you because. Bourbon on the Banks doesn't have sort of like education seminars or anything like that. There's usually, like I said, there's a a row of tents and stuff and you get to go visit a lot of things. You all tried and you still do incorporate a little bit of that so people can go, you can kind of take a break from going to see vendors and go get to these education seminars. Kind of talk about your idea of, of A, wanting to do the education seminars and B, sort of what you learned, because I I know that going into the following year, you said, I think we're going to scale that back a little bit. So kind of talk about the thought process there.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that uh, we did move our event this year to earlier in October and it happens to be October 6th, which is one day before Burbank on the Banks. (laughs) So we have have some of our presenters who are coming in for Friday night at our event and leaving at about 6 a.m., Saturday morning to drive to go do Bourbon on the Banks, which is cool. Like, there, that's some dedication. Uh, so Diane, you and I need to get together, maybe plan our events a little better. So <laughs> yeah, I'd appreciate we, it. Yeah, don't be on top sad. of yours, you know.
3: I but, know. Uh, first Saturday of October, that's that's our date.
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so last year was the first year we introduced educational presentations, which I, I was. James and I are both very much about learning as much as we can about the whiskey industry, the brand, and, and what people are doing. Um, I think there's just so much, just such a wealth of knowledge out there that we don't know until you get in front of one of these brands and really sit down for 30 minutes and listen to them, which I find the probably be the most interesting thing about the bourbon industry right now is just these brands and what they're doing. So last year we did 15 presenters. It was a great success as far as bringing these brands in, filling a room. The only problem was it drove our staff crazy because we were, we were changing over uh, five rooms every 45 minutes for three hours. So from that standpoint, we felt that was like a bit, maybe a bit much for our team. And our our team of admins and volunteers, they work their butts off for these events and they don't get to really enjoy them. So the presentations were amazing. Uh, Fred's was fantastic. He was one of the first ones to ever sell out for our presentations. But we want to scale it back a little bit this year and give and give people not so many options. There were so many options. And to do all that in four hours was intense. So they, they would sign up for two or three presentations and only see about a, a half hour, an hour of the actual festival. So we thought maybe, well, okay, let's scale that back a little bit let's not give them so many options. We want them to spend some time in the festival and see all the other brands and not be just completely wrapped up in these presentations. So this year we're scaling it back to six presentations. And um, that way give give the attendees some time to actually enjoy the festival and then also maybe see a presentation or two if they want.
1: One of the things that I've noticed that some – events are starting to do. I know uh, Chris with the Houston Whiskey Social, he does this as well Is that about even up to two or three days leading up to the, the actual event or f- for festival, they'll have sort of like warm up events or pre parties or whatever it is where a brand might have an activation for an hour or two at a particular location, you get to taste through things, you get to have those sort of one on one sort of things happening because brands are traveling to Houston or to different parts of the country. So it's like, hey, come in a day early and maybe we'll have three or four different events set up at different places. And that way we can have attendees say, Hey, if you want to do this on Friday night before the Saturday event, you can go and do this and so on and so forth. So I've seen that starting to be a, a successful thing too, about brands can get a little bit more out of their, their time that they're investing into to traveling and stuff like that as well. Drew, do you want to chime in? No, I will just say, I, I agree. I mean, it,
0: you know, the brands are looking for successful activations, so if they can come in a day early and do something with some clients or customers and uh basically improve their r o i of their time spent, I know they wanna do that um for us. We don't have the staff or team to really pull that off as much, but I know that you know if you're local, like here in Frankfurt doing a festival it it might be a little easier. And uh, beneficial for them to do that because they're so close by, you know, to the event.
1: Oh, you could do that. You could throw it at a local liquor store. Those liquor stores that have classroom experiences. I mean, you just have it go there, and then you've got your immediate checkout at the counter right there available for you too. So, lots of good options. Exactly.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: And so, well, last I, question. Oh, go ahead, Diane.
3: I was just going to say that was one of the things that in 2019 we did have presenters that took stage during the event. And uh, matter of fact, Fawn Weaver was even one of them. They're talking about the story of Uncle Nearest. And unfortunately, it was not well attended at all. Um, I don't know if it was because it wasn't advertised well, but I got the impression that people just really wanted to be out there sampling. So I will say that the brands are really good about telling their story to the people who are attending. You'll go from one booth to another, and i'm I'm listening as I'm walking up and down. And they have a crowd standing around them, and they tell their story. They really do a very good job of of talking about how they got to be. And I think this sp- the story is what makes every brand special. But uh, we do have uh, other events leading up to ours. We've got our Friday VIP, and we have a panel at that you know with special guests to talk about their story and you know we've got a kickoff this year on thursday at one of the distilleries at whiskey thief distillery and then sunday we're actually including another event which will be one-on-one with a chef Weeta michael on the bourbon suburban bell is what it is it's an excursion so we do have other events but i i like that idea drew and i I think I'll take advantage of that.
2: <laughs> I would say that in doing so many of these, it's, it's always good not to have, you can have panels compete with one another, but it's bad to have like the flow, the flow compete. Uh, so panels and music can compete, but when, when it comes to like walking around and tasting, people will typically choose the walking around and tasting, but they also want the education. And so if someone if you have a if you have a set time for the education portion those people will get there early or maybe it's a separate ticket but the 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 walking around crowd is not always the same as the ones who will sit down in a room and learn and just having done a lot of these I'd also encourage anybody doing this to get independent thought versus the brands doing the education because brands actually are going to spend more time in the mar- marketing and you know quote telling their story, than they are actually going to be teaching. And there's there's a big difference. And when whiskey education is led by the distillers, there's very few Bernie Lubbers that can tell you straight up, and and very few Drew Coles that will tell you real history and so forth. So I'm always I'm always very cautious of letting a, a distiller have a microphone without someone there, you know, keeping them in check.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's all about checks and balances. Yeah. So the the last question I'll throw at you before we start wrapping this up is that even when I plan pursuit palooza I try to figure out well what's my target ticket price going to be. What can I figure out? What is a, a good value that somebody can come away with this? And ours is a little bit different from what you do because Pursuit Palooza is a it's a break even event. Actually, we typically lose money on it because it's supposed to be something that we give back to our Patreon folks for supporting us for so long, and we try to show them insider type of experiences. And it's you know you you would pay as much as you would for a festival ticket, but you get a, a more hands on one on one approach, uh, very intimate type of thing, but it's not a moneymaker for us. So I kind of want to turn it over to you all and and Diane, I'll kind of let you go first. Is that how do you determine the ticket price for what your what your attendees are going to pay?
3: Well, you know, we started with $65 a ticket in 2019. I didn't choose that price. Um, it it seemed okay. We had very little complaints about it being too high or too low. Surveys said it was pretty much spot on. Of course, you know, we've had a lot of inflation since then, but uh, I also noticed that, you know, a lot of people in the bourbon community, they want to pay more for a better experience, but there's also those that can't afford to pay more, and still want the experience. So what we've done is we've kept the $65 ticket price, but we have an early access. You just pay $10 more. We've um, incorporated like a a Saturday VIP access tent, which is, you know, the full-on catered, you know, you get a barrel pick, some swag, the whole nine yards. Um, And, you know, those all sold out. The only thing that we've had to increase is our Friday VIP reception. Um, The inflation just is really... You know, with catering and everything, is has gotten a little bit out of control. So, you know, the goal is to cover expenses and come out a little bit ahead. But you know, we don't we don't want to upset people either. We want to make sure they're getting the value for their dollar.
1: For sure. What about you, Drew? How do you go figuring out the determining the the ticket price?
0: All right. First of all, I'm going <laughs> to say that pursuit palooza. Was probably the best damn weekend I've ever had in Louisville in my life, and yeah, it was way know. too cheap. It was way <laughs> too cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's, and even though, that's even though even though we're we are uh, we are Patreon members and we support you guys and we support Fred. I mean, I that that amount of hands-on curation was too cheap, in my opinion. And I don't know if I can't remember if you guys raised the price or not this year because we were unfortunately scheduled at bourbon and brews and we couldn't attend this year, which is a bummer.
2: Kenny, let's go ahead and send Drew a bill for uh um, <laughs> for since we were too cheap. I appreciate you saying this, yeah. Drew, because too cheap, too I cheap. Felt, yeah, so we'll send you a bill for uh, making up for that. Thank you.
0: It was fantastic it, really, it was fantastic. I mean uh you guys poured your heart and soul into that weekend and uh uh we loved it so it was great and hopefully it doesn't Mostly know, Kenny yeah, Ryan isn't doing anything. What, what does Ryan do? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> he's, he's
1: not here to defend himself. So we can, we yeah, can he's, do that. He's <laughs> easy. Talk pockets. some shit.
0: No, uh, you know, when it comes to pricing. It's it's just such a it's such a ballet of like knowing what your customer's point of value is. And so you know, the first year we did anything, we just set a price and just kind of hoped it was going to be okay, and it was enough to like cover our expenses. But then when the pandemic happened, we came out of pandemic and started festivals again, the pricing of services was a shock. I mean, because they couldn't find labor. So labor went up, you know, 30, 40 percent. And so we were getting rebids on these the same event we just planned, and the price blew me away. I couldn't believe it. And it's still to this day, the pricing has not come down. I mean, the services for these events is incredible. So, yeah, we've had to raise price every year just to cover those expenses and then also meet all our obligations with our um, – we do give, we give away uh, a portion of all ticket sales to different charities in every event. So we still want to meet those obligations and also take care of our guests. But, yeah, uh, prices have gone up. And I, I we sell out every year, but the question is, okay, at what point – do you kind of meet the supply and demand come together and you don't sell out? That's, that's always a concern because I want to make sure that the value for the guest attending has to be paramount. And so if we have to take less profit at the end of the day so that the guest is still feeling like they got a great value, then that's what we'll do. Because the next day when they go on social media to discuss their experience, the experience of the guest is number one for us. After that, we then then discuss profit and everything else and budget, but value for the guest always number one. So, for
2: my events, it it just depends a lot of it depends on the venue, you know, like uh I threw my very first Super Bowl party last year in rent during a super in in a Super Bowl town during the Super Bowl is a lot more than it is typically. So you have to factor that in. You also have to factor in the bourbon, what 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 you're buying and like how many you are are picking up. That factors in like, you know, my my Cincinnati event. Good Lord, the the bourbon bill on that was enormous because we had a ton of allocated product in there. Um and so I will have like a, a negotiation or my agent will rather will have a negotiation with, uh, with the venue and, like, how much it'll be and what the ticket splits will be and so forth. And the matter of staff, you know, for something like uh, Bourbon and Beyond, they will hire twice or three times as many bartenders as they actually need because there's a high probability that someone's not going to show up. And even if they're not going to show up and they're there, they get tired and you want to you have a good rotation going. So there's so many factors that go into a ticket... But to Drew's point, it's about the guests and, and, and what they like you in keeping them happy. You really have several tiers of pricing. You have a $50 tier. You know The expectation for a $50 tier should be Old forcer 1920 and below. You have a 75 a $100 tier, depending on the market with sales tax and so forth. You know that's maybe you know some barrel picks. Then you have the three hundred dollar tier and above, which uh, I've had p- ticket prices as high as like twelve hundred for some of my events, and that's where the creme de la creme, the pappy twenty three, things like that are in abundance. And that is where you gotta you gotta deliver at every single level. The area that I have I have struggled with is like when I'm promoting something, I say here's a ticket, and then here's a VIP ticket. People somehow confuse the VIP ticket, which has Pappy, Mictors, Twenty, Russell's Reserve, Thirteen Year. They think they're going to get all that for fifty bucks or hundred bucks. You know, so I I think that's that you you have to be so plainly stated in your in your ticketing and your promotions that people do not get confused. That that part, people, I think sometimes when they book book their tickets, they. You know, they see the Pappy and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get it for 50 bucks. You're not getting Pappy and Mictor's 20 and all those things at an event, an education for 50 bucks. It's just not going to happen.
1: Deal the century right there. Yeah. yeah it's, but it's the same thing as buying a GA ticket versus a VIP or a VIP plus or whatever it's going to be. So it's one of those things to understand.
2: Most of the time, people, every every bourbon event I've put on and I've been to, Ninety nine percent are incredibly happy. You know, people just because it's a community, everyone loves to gather, it's kinda like I said at the top, this is our therapy, this is where we go to hang.
1: There you go. Get your get your bourbon on and be with people just like you too. Y'all, this has been great. This has been a fun conversation to kind of understand how people are doing different types of bourbon festivals across the country and how things are shaping and how they're doing it differently. Really what makes it unique at the end of the day, too. So uh, before we sign off, Diane, give a plug real quick for Bourbon on the Banks.
3: Yeah, we're taking place October 7th That is the main festival. We've got some other stuff going on throughout that weekend. Um, you can find out everything about it at bourbononthebanks.org. It's all listed, all the different events. We'd love to have you come and join us for sure.
1: Awesome. And Drew?
0: Uh, yeah, if you want to join us at the St. Louis Bourbon Festival, you just got to go to stlouisbourbonfestival.com. And tickets went on sale June 30th. Uh, we have sold out every year. So if you're interested, jump on there quick and grab some tickets.
1: Love it. Well, again, thank you also coming so much for coming on, uh, especially being supporters of bourbon pursuit, as well as our brand on pursuit spirits. It's always been good to be able to establish these relationships over time as well. And looking forward to being there in person and being a part of both the whiskey festivals too. But with that, cheers, everybody. Make sure if you like this show, support us. You can do it through Patreon, leave a review, just tell a friend, go to these bourbon festivals, go find people, go explore new whiskeys. There's so many, as we are talking about on here, there's 70, 80, 90, 100 different brands that you can go and just try different things. So I'm sure that you've looked at the wall of whiskey that either is on your shelf or at the liquor store and you're like, well, I've had most of this before, but what can I experience differently? And this is the perfect opportunity to do that. So Think of uh, scraping your pennies together, looking at your couch cushions and, and making a trip out there to go make it happen. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Baka sucks.